Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. We need clean water to survive. In recent decades, we've become all too familiar with the headlines highlighting the impacts of the drinking water crisis plaguing other parts of the world. 300 million people in Africa still don't have access to clean water, and close to half a billion don't have access to sanitation. Then, two years ago, the world found out about the lead poisoning disaster unfolding in Flint, Michigan. President Obama signed an emergency declaration today for Flint, Michigan, which will bring federal funding to that city as it deals with an enormous and dangerous public health challenge. With its water supply contaminated by lead, there is growing anger and frustration, as we hear from Stephanie Gosk. The shred of good news for residents in Flint these days comes bottled and handed out at fire stations, a combination of local, state, and federal help now on the ground. Finally. I got a three-year-old, you know, I don't want her to get sick. We keep paying taxes, we keep paying water bills. I mean, you know, when does it end? The most frequent reaction to the Flint saga was, how could this be happening in America, the richest country on the planet? Which was quickly followed by, this will never be allowed to happen again. In today's episode, we shine a light on the one million people in California who in 2018 still don't have access to clean water. In many rural communities in California, the water that comes out of the faucet is polluted with a cocktail of nitrates, arsenic, bacteria, pesticides, disinfectant byproducts, and even uranium. While there is also a legacy of industrial pollution from the aerospace and semiconductor industries that has polluted the groundwater in California cities, in this episode, we'll focus on where the majority of the problem lies small, rural, low-income communities of color in California's agricultural heartland. The story that unfolds in today's episode is about how the wealthiest state in the wealthiest country on earth treats its poorest residents. During recent droughts in California, some of these same rural communities had no water at all. That meant no water for cooking, for showering, for cleaning, or even for flushing the toilet. In one small town we visit, East Porterville, it took two years for help to arrive. We start our journey in Seville, California, a town of 410 residents where the average family income is $16,000 per year. We meet up with Becky Quintana, who starts by sharing a story of a recent trip with her grandson. Even with my grandkids, they're very concerned um, they're real aware of what's going on in our area. Um, I'll share something with me that I took my grandson to New Mexico and and my other grandkids were there playing with the water hose, drinking, and he was like having a panic attack. Please don't drink the water. What are you guys doing? Don't drink the water. And I said, no, 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 the water here in this in this community is okay. But in his mind, he knows that he's not allowed to to even play with the water mm. in our community or even drink out of the, the water hose. But um, he's aware. He's five years old, and now he's aware of, uh, he thinks that everybody has bad water. He shouldn't even have to be worrying about that. Next, I travel to the larger town of Visalia, which is only six miles from Seville and only 30 miles from Sequoia National Park. 
I go to meet with Adriana Renteria of the Community Water Center, a group which has been at the forefront of the battle to get safe water for all Californians. Their office is in an old church on a dusty side street. Adriana helps me get my bearings. So all around us, there are smaller communities, um, farm worker communities um, that really provide agriculture, not just for our, our state, but for the country and, and for the world, really. How many people do you think um, that you serve don't have access to water that meets federal drinking water standards? We estimate that over a million Californians currently don't have access to safe and affordable water. A million, that's a big number. It's a big number. I think one of the reasons why it's not on the forefront of our media um, is because it's not happening in one area. It's not just one, one city of one million people. This is happening throughout the state in small pockets, and it's particularly affecting small rural communities, uh, low-income communities and communities of color. And so when you have such a spread out issue that has many different, um, that looks many different ways, it's kind of hard to find one unified solution for it. Um, but even beyond being exposed to unsafe water during the drought, many people just lost access to water, period. So um, here in Tulare County, we, um, the community of East Porterville, they had over 2,000 wells that went dry. And so they were on private domestic wells. It really impacted um, that entire community's ability to, to live um, and to, to feel healthy, you know, even things like washing dishes. Well, the community really came together and especially um, the community church offered showers. Um, the, um, the schools opened up to provide, to provide an opportunity for the students to take showers. I grew up in the valley. I love the valley. All of this is, that's my family. Um, uh, my parents were farm workers, so I really relate to a lot of the smaller communities in the area. I just really thought, um, that's not just happening in Flint. It's also happening here in my hometown, in, in my community. Many communities simply lack the finances to build the treatment systems needed to filter out contaminants like arsenic or nitrates. And even when they have built clean water facilities, these same communities often lack the funds to manage and operate a treatment plant. I asked Becky Quintana to describe the impact in Seville of not having clean water. That was a big impact for families, especially your uh, farm workers that have been working in the fields for hours all day and to come home and not be able to wash your body, knowing that you have chemicals in your hands. And So what did people do if they couldn't, if they were so worried about the pollution as they should be from the water coming out of the faucet? People had to communicate with other family members before they would go home. Um, asking questions as to, because um, sometimes in our community, we didn't have water at all because sometimes the electricity would be turned off and we had zero water. During the summer here in, in the Central Valley, a lot of the homes have uh, swamp coolers. You need water to keep your house cool. And as I was looking out the window, I seen this guy in a baby stroller. I thought, does he have a baby? He was hauling a water, a five-gallon water. And I thought, oh, my gosh. I go, this looks like something from the movies from somewhere in a third-world country, people hauling water, you know, in a baby cart, in a baby stroller. But even though I started thinking, it's 110 degrees outside, 
and they have no water to keep their house cool inside. And I'm sure their house, inside their house, must have been like 115. But just not having the water to keep cool. A recent report found that a quarter of California's 7,000 public schools did not meet drinking water standards. Bacteria and arsenic were the most common violations. I asked Becky whether this was the case for her kids' school in Seville. I was a board member at the time, school board member, and for our school not to have drinking water for our kids is unheard of. I mean, like, this is like third world issues, and it's happening here in my community. So I did take an initiative to try to make a difference locally with our local politicians, and that didn't go very well because um, um, they just tend to not want to help, I don't know why, but um, undeveloped. Um, communities. It's like, uh, you guys costing us too much money, you know, you got to figure that out by yourself. And of course, um, it got to the point where our local politicians weren't listening to us. Next, we meet up with Erasto Tehran, who cut his teeth organizing with Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers in their fight for fair treatment of agricultural laborers. Erasto lives in the town of East Porterville that was cut off from water during the recent drought. Arasto, what was it like during those times? Like people say, you know, they uh, we are in our, one of the richest countries in the world, and we, California it will be a country, will be the sixth economic in the world, maybe the fifth. And, uh, and even, uh, and I can tell you this comment about this resident in Sporty, say, well, I was living in Mexico, I was poor, but at least I have that river next to me, and I can go get water to for my family. But here, I have to drive more than a mile, two miles to ask family or friends to give me water, at least to flush my toilet. Erasto, not only did East Porterville run out of water, but when you do have water, it's heavily contaminated. Here in the valley, we have a major contaminants of nitrates, uh, uh, bacteria, um, uh, one, two, three DCP. Uh, these contaminants there, they've been here for years. Last year, we test about... Um, about 30, 40 wells in this area. And uh, and we have a record that most of these uh, the wells, they have a contaminant. Okay, so we are uh, uh, nitrates, one of the heaviest contaminants here in the valley. Uh, we are not upset or mad with the agriculture uh, um, sector, but this is the time they need to take responsible about how they contaminated and how they've been contaminated for years. We still have a big gap between uh, the need of the residents and the quality of life that some cities they have in California. For example, if what would happen if the drought was in Beverly Hills? I guarantee you that the next 24 hours, someone is going to call uh, Jerry Brown, Mr. Brown, we don't have no water. The next day will be resolved the problem. We took two years, two years. When you go to a small community and you tell them for the first time that their water is contaminated and it doesn't meet the Safe Drinking Water Act federal standards, I mean, they might, what's their reaction to that? Well, the reaction is, for example, we test a well, um, Mr. Cristobal Chavez, outside of Porterville, between Porterville and Poplar, and he he had a well with, uh, very contaminated with nitrates. He was drinking that water for years, for years, until we test the well. But in this case, uh, 
uh, Mr. Chavez world was over 80 percent higher than the standard. Yes. Yeah. I asked Adriana with the Community Water Center how they started to move the drinking water issue from a crisis to a sustainable solution. So we worked really hard to make sure that California prioritizes a human right to water. And that right was passed in 2012. Um, and, and what that means for us now that we have our state recognizing that human right is that we can then create pathways for solutions to addressing that. Why is it important to have a human right to to safe drinking water? Well, really water is life um, and water impacts your health, a community's ability to grow. Um, when you have contaminants like nitrate and arsenic in your water, um, not only is that impacting your, your health, but it's impacting the health of your family. And it particularly impacts the health of children. When you see who is most impacted by by exposure to toxic water, you see that it's low-income communities, communities of color. Um, and it's it's just unjust. It's not it's not fair. Even before California declared drinking water a human right, Becky Quintana had been working day and night to get clean water for her community of Seville. Becky, what's the latest in 2018? Well, you know what? We started almost nine years ago. And we're finally getting bids coming in for new infrastructure. But nine years is a lot of is a lot of years. That shouldn't that's that's too long. I mean, water is is a crisis, but to wait nine nine years is a little too long. <laughs> it's a lot too long <laughs> to me. I mean, it yeah. seems like forever. And it's very interesting because um, when I do talk to the people from the community, and it's like oh, it's the same thing. We're never going to get water. How long has it been, Becky? It's already going what in ten years? I said, yeah, but. We're almost there, you know, we'll be there. But it's, 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 it's discouraging for a lot of people. It's like, we're never going to get water. Well, you were tenacious. I mean, it probably would never, I mean, yeah, maybe nine years is a very, very, very long time to wait for, for clean drinking water. But at the same time, without Becky, it would never have happened, maybe. Right. I mean, you, you kept going, you kept pushing. Pushing and pushing. I mean, it got to the point where I would take letters and notes to our border supervisors and read letters and, you know, give me a call, call me. Um, yeah, I even got threatened. Um, Tell us about that. Well, because when the UN came to Seville, they brought the UN to the United States and they visited, I think, four four towns, and Seville happened to be one of them. So in March 2011, Caterina de Albuquerque of the United Nations visited Seville to evaluate the community's water system. She was appointed by the UN's Human Rights Council as the first UN independent expert on human rights obligations with respect to access to safe drinking water and sanitation. Becky, what did you say to the UN? I wanted to let them know what what we were living under and... Uh, and of course, at the time, uh, it was brought to the attention to the Board of Supervisors here in Tulare County that the UN was here, and they were very upset. That, <laughs> and to me, it was like, you should be happy that they're here so that everybody knows and maybe Washington knows what's going on, so maybe we can get some funding to help communities. But they were really upset that why did we have to go to this? extent and 
Yeah, they were not happy. <laughs> but you know what? That's what it took. It opened a lot of eyes throughout the United States. But Seville just happens to be one community. There's a lot of communities, especially in Tulare County, that has water issues. Cousin David joined me for the talk with Becky, and he was clearly upset. It makes me uncomfortable hearing that because it just seems so foreign to me. I mean, I've always lived in big cities, so I always take everything for granted that I have clean water. Just, just hearing you tell that story just made me like, I don't know, angry. Just like I felt bad. Like I just can't even believe how, like, how entitled some of us are. We get so much. And now a word from our sponsor, Thrive Market. As my mom always says, healthy living starts at home. A new report says it's not the air outside you should be worried about. Instead, it's what you're breathing inside your home. There is growing evidence that cleaning supplies can increase the risk of asthma and other problems in children and adults. This is particularly big news because we spend more than 90% of our lives indoors. Studies show that indoor air pollution is often five times worse than the outdoor air. So it can actually be worse for your health to watch TV at home than to inhale fumes next to a congested freeway. As we work to protect our environment, we often overlook our homes and offices. But it's where a lot of the action's at. Many cleaning supplies can irritate the eyes or throat or cause headaches and other health problems, including cancer. Some products contain dangerous chemicals, including ammonia and bleach. Using traditional glass cleaning, furniture, and air freshening sprays has been shown to contribute to a 50% increase in asthma symptoms. Phthalates, perchloroethylene, triclosan are not made-up words, but some of the toxins lurking in your cleaning products. Many of the products stored under your kitchen sink have the same pollutants that contribute to smog, impact water quality, and create hazardous waste sites. You shouldn't need a PhD to shop for household cleaning products, and thanks to Thrive Market, you no longer do. Thrive Market only sells non-toxic, eco-friendly cleaners from dish soap and laundry detergent to all-purpose cleaners. Thrive Market has products that keep your house and the environment clean at prices that are less than their toxic alternatives. Thrive is a revolutionary online marketplace that also sells non-GMO and natural snacks, vitamins, non-toxic beauty products, kitchen staples, home goods, organic baby food, and so much more, all shipped right to your door in a recycled cardboard box. Thrive Market is the largest retailer in the country that sells exclusively non-GMO groceries, and more than 70% of the Thrive Market catalog cannot be found on Amazon. You can filter the catalog by your values and your dietary preferences, which makes shopping vegan, vegetarian, paleo, and gluten-free super easy. And here's the best part. Thrive Market is giving Podship Earth listeners $60 of free groceries, plus free shipping and a 30-day trial. Simply go to thrivemarket.com slash podship. There are no codes. Just make sure to type in thrivemarket.com slash podship, and the discount will be applied at checkout. This week, when you are hiking during the time you would normally have been inside a packed and brightly lit traditional grocery store, you will know what it means to thrive. Back with Adriana Renteria at the Community Water Centre, she explains that their long campaign for clean water funding might soon bear fruit. This January, the governor included language um, 
language for the Safe and Affordable Drinking Water Fund in the governor's budget. So that's really exciting. It really means that the governor is prioritizing Safe and Affordable Drinking Water Fund. And um, we as a state need to say, we need to remind him and all of our representatives that we also prioritize that. And as a low-income community, treatment systems or um, or other type of uh, water quality remediation projects are not are not currently accessible. A portion of the fund would come from an agricultural fertilizer fee, and another portion of the fund would come from a, a, a fee on dairies, and then another portion of the fee would come from a public fee. It, it's an unusual coalition between farmers and environmental justice, social justice, health advocates um, in supporting the Safe and Affordable Drinking Water Fund, um, which is one solution to address, um, to implement the human right to water. Adriana is right. The coalition to create the $140 million annual safe and affordable drinking water fund was really unprecedented. For decades, social and environmental justice groups have been at loggerheads with farmers. Now they're working in unison. In order to find out how this all came together, I talked with Dave Puglia, the executive vice president of the Western Growers Association, whose members and their workers provide over half the nation's fresh fruits, vegetables, and tree nuts, including nearly half of America's fresh organic produce. Dave, how did all this happen? The real motivator was an acknowledgement that we do have a problem, but clearly, uh, because we do apply nitrogen fertilizer to the ground, some share of that nitrate came from historic ag operations that farmers in California did um, have that aha moment when they realized, look, we can fight this all day long, but this is a legitimate problem. We don't want anybody in our communities to lack for safe drinking water. We did have something to do with the nitrate that's now in the drinking water below them. Let's step forward. Let's put some skin in the game and help help uh, correct the problem. California drinking water is plagued with contaminants that go well beyond nitrate and go well beyond the farm areas of the state. Urban areas have very serious water quality problems, drinking water, water quality problems. A lot of it is naturally occurring material, um, such as lead um, or um, arsenic. And so we wanted to find a way for the state to um, holistically tackle the problem, get clean drinking water to the people who don't have it now, and remove the threat of punitive enforcement against growers. Probably everyone came into the room for different reasons. Um, but when you left the room, um, there's now fees on on ag. Tell us a little bit about those and, and how they will work. Yeah, yeah we had to um, step forward and agree to essentially tax ourselves for uh, mitigation of, of that part of the problem, the nitrate problem in rural areas. So we've agreed to a, an increase on the existing tax on fertilizer used for farming. Uh, that will generate about $30 million per year, um, mostly from, from crop agriculture, from people growing fruits, vegetables, and tree nuts. Some of it will also come from the state's dairy um, operators and, and poultry operations. It also is accompanied by a um, fee on every water user in California that, with the exception of those who are, who are poverty level or below, they'd be exempted, or very small water systems would be exempted. But uh, most of us would pay about 95 cents per month for the operations and maintenance costs of upgrading systems or connecting people to larger systems so they no longer have water that is out of compliance. 
the only folks that seems to be really against this are the the water utilities in the big cities. I was looking up. It just happens that I got the list off their website. Or so number two city on the list was City of Beverly Hills, where the medium home value um, is four point nine million dollars, and their property tax bill is seventy eight thousand dollars a year average. And they're quibbling about a dollar, <laughs> twelve dollars a year, and that that could be the thing that sinks this this piece of legislation. I mean, tell us your thoughts on that, Dave. Well, you know, we we normally find ourselves in alignment with California's water agencies, uh, but you're right. There are those like Beverly Hills who oppose it. I called around to three different water agencies, but none of them wanted to talk with me about why they oppose the Safe Drinking Water Fund. Instead, they sent me to their trade group, aptly named ACWA, the Association of California Water Agencies, who represents public agencies across the state. I asked Cindy Tuck, who leads their government relations team, to explain how a group of water agencies could be against a fund to support safe drinking water. So we're okay with the creation of a fund. The question is, how should that fund be funded? So the ag part of the bill would raise about up to $30 million. That's only 20% of the funding that this fund is intended to have. The other 80%, which is the proposed tax on water, the water community wasn't at the table. So it was a, an agreement between some folks, but it wasn't an agreement between everyone that the bill affects. The way this has been written, they're proposing that the local water agency would collect the tax for the state and send 100% of that to Sacramento and then the state water board would decide where that money goes. The proposal is uh, for most residences, it would be 95 cents per month. No one wants a fee or a tax raised on them, but how else are we going to solve this problem without a fee on people who can afford it? We're opposed to creating a tax on people's water. Instead of agreeing to a fee from water users, these agencies want the money to clean up California's dirty water to come from somewhere else. I asked Dave Puglia from the Farmers Association for his take. I do think that it is a very narrow-minded view when you look at the larger problem of people in California who don't have access to safe drinking water. That's insane. It's not tolerable. We should, California should have never let the problem get this bad. But we now have an opportunity to take a huge step forward to rectifying it, and we shouldn't be hung up over squibbling or, or, or squabbling over which pot of money to tap. We don't think it's asking too much to pay a dollar a month to make sure that people have clean drinking water. In order to understand how this is going to get resolved, I reached out to Joaquin Esquivel, who was appointed by California Governor Jerry Brown to the State Water Board, the entity that ultimately holds responsibility for implementing the 1974 Safe Drinking Water Act. I asked Joaquin how in 2018 a million Californians could still not have access to clean drinking water. It is, it is it is striking. I think um, it speaks to the fact that it is probably one of our more thorny issues. Um, but I think now that we have the proper public attention, uh, now that we've seen a tremendous amount of leadership um, in the state, I think that there's hope to, to have this addressed. What are you hearing from communities? Uh, but when it comes down to it, it is this basic desire to be able to have safe and clean drinking water. Um, and it's, again, uh, something we, we take incredibly for granted 
um, and is, is a dark mark on us in the state that uh, we have so many um, without access. Has the community voice been heard by you and other board members? Unless you go and you speak with community members, uh, you understand the, the challenges they're facing. Um, it's incredibly hard. And so in my trips down to the Central Valley, um, back home, even in the Coachella Valley, uh, around issues on the Salton Sea, which uh, have tremendous uh, environmental justice implications for uh, many of the, the same um, agricultural dependent um, communities. I, I know it's incredibly difficult for, for people to take the time to, to come to Sacramento, uh, particularly on a work day, um, but uh, it makes a, a tremendous difference. I'll be honest, uh, those that attend are uh, usually industry representatives, they're paid to be there. But sometimes what that means is those that can't afford to take the day off, those that um, aren't as plugged into sort of the bureaucratic, you know, minutiae of the board, um, aren't the ones that we hear from as often. Uh, but when they do come in, when communities come in, um, they, they make their voices heard, they address the board. Um, I know it has a, a tremendous impact on myself uh, and, and my colleagues. Do you think that the Safe and Affordable Drinking Water Fund will end up getting adopted? I hope that this is sort of the crowning achievement of that uh, to really uh, once and for all address this need to safe and clean drinking water within our state. I certainly hope that Joaquin is right. I asked Becky in the small town of Seville, California, what she'll do if the funds don't come through this year. My parents have been there since the 1940s. I myself was like, I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to make sure that when I'm gone from this world that Whoever lives in this community is going to have safe drinking water. A big thanks to Becky Quintana, Adriana Renteria, Aresta Taran, Dave Puglia, Cindy Tuck, and Joaquin Esquivel for sharing both the challenges and the solutions to the clean drinking water crisis in California. If one million people in a very wealthy state like California can be denied the basic human right to water for all these years, it offers a glimpse into why the world's poorest 840 million residents don't have access to clean water today. It's clearly not about the technology, as that's been around for decades and is only getting better. And in the case of California, it really isn't about the money. California's budget will exceed $190 billion in 2018. It's about the political will to spend money on poor communities that often don't have the political clout to get the help they need. What I took away from today's episode is that through excellent grassroots organizing skills and sheer tenacity, small environmental justice groups like the Community Water Center can help give a voice to community members like Becky and Arasto. And what is truly a game changer is that for the first time, farm workers, health advocates, and environmentalists were able to work with farm and dairy owners to broker a deal that has the potential to help a million people get access to something I often take for granted clean water with which to drink, cook, clean, and wash. The final vote on the Safe and Affordable Drinking Water Fund will happen in the next few months, and I'll keep you updated. If you live in California, please go to the webpage for this episode and see how you can help get the legislation over the finish line. I would encourage each of you to look at the environmental issues facing the poorest members of your community, city, or country, and to reach out to local groups that are making a difference. In next week's show, we'll be looking at the role that culture plays in shaping how we think about climate change. Please like the Podship Earth pages on Facebook and Instagram. 
Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, editor Rob Spate, producer Nancy Ferranti, executive producer David Kahn, and me, Jared Blumenfeld, have an absolutely fabulous week. Mm-hmm.